In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. I expected one to be at least here in Clifton. Clifton's considered the capital of Connemara, and it's the, the market town for probably some 15 other communities, and it would just make a lot of sense to have a vaccine center here, especially in terms of efficiency and the fact that it's now at, at least an hour and 15 minutes just to get to Galway, let alone depending on where you're going in Galway City. So, yeah, the, it's a bit neglected. It feels like we're being a bit neglected here. I'd be, I'd be annoyed that I had to travel that far. I'd be grateful that I get to get it. But, um, yeah, it's a, like, I hardly ever go into Galway City. There's no, no need to leave Clifton for the most part, unless you're looking for a, a, an overnight and a night out. But there's no need for that to leave Clifton. Um, HSC has recognized Clifton as a, as a, like a, a place where they need out, medical outreach. There, there are services here because Clifton is the market town and it serves you know, the greater Connemara area. Would you be hopeful that maybe the local GP will be able to administer the vaccine when the time comes? Well, you know, the whole if- efficiency of delivering the vaccine doesn't make sense to me anyways because you could, you could send mobile units to a community like Clifton and get, get the whole area done in less than a week or, or even in a matter of days, let alone a week. And I said, I was just saying this the other day, it's like, you know, the logistics of it to make everybody go into one place just doesn't make sense to me. It's going to take forever. If, if I have to drive an hour and 15 to go to go to get a vaccine, I'm more apt to put it off than I am to get it if I just have to come to that local car park right there, you know, walk in, walk out, and you get the whole, the whole town at, at done in a day. And then the rest of the, the area done in another two days. And even walking around the town centre here, there's there's plenty of hotels that are currently closed at the minute. There are two hotels right in the centre of town that are closed down. You know, which 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 would be a, a great a great place to get it done. You know, you pick the right day, like pick Friday. People come into Clifton anyways. So, yeah, there's it can easily be done. Barry White reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, over the past few weeks and months, we've heard from doctors, nurses and patients about the frightening reality of COVID. On Friday, Pat Kenny spoke to Dr Rachel Clark about her experience of working on the COVID front line. Why did you decide to write the book? Was it that you feel, not just in, in your country, but in ours, that people are insulated from the, the, the true reality, the drama, the, the struggle for life, uh, which is inflicted by COVID-19? Well, if I'm honest, uh, to begin with, I, I tended to write simply as almost a kind of therapy, like a lot of doctors and nurses on the front line. I, I, I couldn't sleep. I had terrible insomnia in the first wave of the pandemic. We, we were all really shocked and horrified by what we were seeing and I used to kind of get up and pace the kitchen at night so I didn't wake up my husband and bash things out on my laptop because I wasn't really talking to anyone else about it and I think it was just a way of getting it out and it wasn't until that first wave had abated that I started to feel this urge to try and tell the public what was happening and I think it was because Everything was going on behind closed doors. There was very few or no visitors at all because we had to have really strict infection control measures. And at the same time, there was this public narrative that sometimes bore no relation to what we were all seeing and experiencing. Um, And I desperately wanted people to know that 
behind those awful statistics, the daily death tolls, a thousand more people have died in the UK. Um, there were real human beings. And although there was suffering and pain, there was also a, a, an NHS workforce that was doing extraordinary things every day, absolutely incredible things, and trying so hard to be kind and loving and compassionate in these absolutely horrendous circumstances. And I wanted people to know that because it it, it wasn't out there. Um, and I And I really wanted to try and show it as it was. Palliative care specialist, Dr. Rachel Clark from The Pat Kenny Show. Mary, I know that you are nowhere near 85, but we are talking to you nonetheless. How are people feeling, your friends, that the older group of people out there, this is good news, isn't it? Yes, I have a friend who got her letter last week and she's going in today. And she's delighted. Of course she is. We all are. I wish they'd all shut up about it and just get on with it. You know, they're talking and talking and talking about it endlessly. It seems very slow, doesn't it? It is a little bit slow, but in fairness to the Mary, I think the supply is is the issue around all of that. Just briefly, how has it been this last year for people in your age group living alongside COVID, which is obviously scary and oh, threatening? Oh, it's been awful. Yeah. I haven't. You know, the, the first lockdown we thought was bad, but at least that was in sort of good weather. Yeah. You could be out your back and you could be talking to the birds or talking to yourself. But uh, the the weather has been... Now, it's lovely today. It's yeah. very mild. But, uh, no, it's been a long time. And, uh, yes, we had a meaningful Christmas. I had a lovely time with my family, nice and easy. But it's been a long time since. But at least it's all looking up. Yeah. And I suppose, lastly, do, do you feel a glimmer of hope now that this is the beginning of the end? Yes, I do. I do, I do. I think if we're all going to one by one according to age if we're going to get our vaccines well then that means we can go out and about we're relatively safe to meet other people or they to meet us so yes I'm so looking forward to that and yes I am 83 so my turn will be in about one two three four maybe four weeks Mary O'Rourke from News Talk Breakfast I'm having a chat with Debbie. Debbie, how many years have you been a cab driver? Um, 22 years. Debbie, have you ever seen anything quite like this? And how has today been? How's the last few months been? It's, it's just been horrendous, but you just have to do what you have to do. You know, you come out to work in the morning, hopefully you might get one, two jobs, but you won't be getting any more than that. And then that can take at least eight to ten hours, you know. So you could get two jobs in eight to ten hours. And yeah. what would you bring home in those eight to ten hours? Well, for argument's sake, Saturday I got forty-two euros. <laughs> you know, so. So after tax, insurance, fuel, other hidden costs, you're not really making much at all, are you? No, no. Some days it's not worth uh, to come out and work, but you need to get out of the house just for your own sanity, you know. So you're continuing to work because you're an essential worker. Uh, you're doing it to keep your sanity. Um, for example, there's a plane just coming in behind us there from the United Arab Emirates. There could be a fare on that. Yeah, there could be. I mean, but you're you're talking about a plane that's carrying, able to carry 350 people and there might be 15, 20 people, 30 people, but there won't be definitely any more than that many people on the flights. And they might rent a car. 
well, not many of them rent cars, but a lot of them people are picking up or whatever, you know. So you might get a couple of jobs off it, but you can definitely won't be getting a lot. And do you worry about your health? <laughs> yeah, well, everybody worries about their health, but unfortunately I don't, I'm not in great health. But look, you take every day as it comes. <laughs> But you're on the cab with anybody, really, uh, and they could be coming in from any particular country or they could be travelling anywhere in the county or the country. They could be an essential worker, they could be hospital staff, it could be anyone. But nowadays, most people have already taken the COVID test, you know, and they've all got their masks on and they sanitise and stuff like that. So in fairness, in, in, in all the months that we've been working, there hasn't been any taxi drivers that I know of that have caught COVID from any passengers. So you've all been OK? Yeah, everybody seems to have been. Anybody that we know, anyway. Personally, think myself, I'm back since August, and I've picked up one fare on the street. One fare on the street, and we know the survey says that 38% of the general public have said they've taken a taxi in 2020, so it's more than I thought. But for you, you've got one fare from the street. Last Tuesday, I was in town at 10 o'clock in the morning. I had an NCT at 12.45. I drove around town, Baggage Street, Donnybrook, everywhere for two hours before I went to get the NCT and I put nobody in my car. I done six hours at Dublin Airport. I got €20.40 into the Matter Hospital. I didn't work Saturday. I, worked su- I didn't work Sunday. I came out this morning at 5.30 in Dublin Airport, straight to the ramp and was still there at 25 to 11. I'm 54. I worry about my health as circumstances I can do all I can in the car every time someone gets out we all sanitise our cars people are out washing their cars or cleaning them yeah people have big massive uh, what are they called chamois screens well we have screens but we also have disinfectant in the cars and every time we do the handles we do the doors you can only do so much we wear masks and hopefully everybody does the same Henry McKean reporting for the Heart Shelter with Kieran Cudahy how did you come up with this idea Father? well I didn't actually it was the the Marin Centre Joe Joyce, who came to me and suggested it, we both felt that a tradition like that, if at all possible, we'd like it to continue. Uh, but I must say, I was was resigned to Ashes Left Ash, Ash Wednesday, I'm afraid. Mm. But Joe uh, came up with that suggestion, and also then he also provided the, the little containers, and then so I, I added in a, a little prayer service for the families. And that's really how it has uh, emerged. So, so how will this work, Father? Uh, people just will take the little containers and the little prayer service and in their own homes on Ash Wednesday, uh, they can then just go through the little service. It, it has the, the same sort of admonitions as we would have had in the church. You know, turn away from sin and be faithful to the gospel. Remember that you are dust and unto dust you shall return. Then we just added a little one for the younger ones. Uh, God loves you and he thinks you're wonderful. So that's just really what uh, we've offered to them. So people people will go into the into their local centre and they... Go into the churches. We put them out in the churches. We have three churches in this parish. Oh, so they'll collect them from the church? Yes. Yeah. And they'll be in little, as you said, the, the blessed ashes, Father, yeah. will be in little um, yeah. containers. And, yeah. I mean, what sort of demand are you expecting? Well, we have we blessed them on Saturday night. We we did two hundred of them, and we blessed them on Saturday night, and we left them out in the churches on Sunday, and uh, they were all gone by dinner time on Sunday. So we're now trying to <laughs> dredge up little containers uh, from uh, from from everywhere to get uh, uh, to do more. 
And this is across, this is the three um, different churches in, in the Clonmany Parish, is that right? right? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you had 200 gone on, yes. on by Sunday evening? Yes. So <laughs> obviously, uh, people were sort of, uh, met a need of some sort to the, that people had. So we were very pleased at that night, you might guess. And do you expect, you know, how how will you manage it? Is it is it one container per household? Or? Yes, that's what I've asked, uh, that they would take a little... It's those wee containers that you put uh, sauces into, you know, wee small things, or, yeah. or wee small jam jars, like the wee, wee, wee goodie pie ones, uh, uh, so that just a, it, it doesn't really need that much uh, ashes for, for each family, so it doesn't. Mm-hmm. The um for for people looking to get in contact with you, I mean, I, I look, I presume obviously with the current you know cap on restrictions and just the the five kilometer distance that people can travel, um, you're not looking for people, I'm sure, father from other parishes. But are you the only parish that's doing this? Well, as far as I know, at this stage anyway, unless other parishes take it up, I haven't heard of any other parish doing it. Uh, so I haven't, but uh, I would recommend it now, to be honest with you, because we're very pleased with the response and the, the sort of um, the, the demand that has uh, mm. emerged. Father Brian Brady from Lunchtime Live with Andrea Gilligan. Uh, Patricia uh, says uh, on the subject of free speech that we were just uh, talking about uh, it's so bizarre that student unions would be deplatforming speakers it sort of goes against everything uh, being a student is meant to be she says you don't have to accept what these people are saying but you might learn something by listening to them saying it my memory of college is hearing all sorts of mad opinions I'd never heard before some I accepted some I didn't I survived uh, another texter says where does the new law draw the line between freedom uh, and hate speech that's always the crux of the issue, right? Well, indeed, and and Selena said that herself. There are, is already uh, um, legislation about hate speech. Now, this is the, for the UK, uh, so uh, that would cover that already uh, um, within terms of what's acceptable or not. And presumably, if you're a students' union or a university, you're not going to invite somebody to come along and speak uh, who's going to, uh, um, you think, indulge in hate speech. Uh, Sarah says, we're all grown-ups here. Uh, If you don't like what someone is saying, you don't have to listen to them. It's not necessary to shut them up. Just don't attend the speech. Well, I suppose part of the thinking... uh, um, Now, this is necessarily to kind of defend uh, uh, um, deplatforming, but there is a connection between speech and thought and action. Uh, For instance, let me give you an instance. In this country, 50 or 60 years ago, it would be acceptable to say, I don't think Protestants and Catholics should get married. Uh, That would be deemed to be uh, an acceptable thing. You could, you know, write a letter into the Irish Times and they'd probably publish it. They wouldn't publish it today because most people would find that not just offensive, just a ridiculous notion. By the same, uh, and by the same token, it was acceptable in this country at one time to regard a woman who had a baby out of wedlock as a sinner. Who, d- who didn't deserve anybody's sympathy, who didn't deserve any hate by the, by the state, who, who the state, and indeed the Catholic Church, could do to whatever they wanted, as in lock them away in a place, sell off their babies, uh, conduct uh, medical experiments on their babies. Nowadays, if somebody wanted to make a speech in a university promoting that idea... Would we be very keen on that? That's why, and there are people now who live in our society who might feel they're vulnerable, who might feel they're minorities and aren't exactly crazy the idea of other people talking about them in what they would regard as a slightly dehumanising way. 
That's why, you know, there's contention over this. Uh, Tony says, all over the English-speaking world, universities are dominated by left-wing liberal cliques. The interviewing panels discriminate against any candidate who does not follow their political beliefs. They facilitate the deep platforming of any view which does not mirror their own, in effect a more subtle form of book burning and censorship. Left-wing liberals believe they have a monopoly of what is or what is not acceptable. They justify this fascist totalitarian approach by saying they must protect everyone from any view other than their own, basically a Stalinist view of the world. Thank you, Tony, for that very measured analysis uh, of the situation. Uh, Paul says government-mandated free speech is a complete oxymoron. If her ideas receive backlash and people don't want to host her, that is the free marketplace of ideas. Ridiculous to claim repressed speech when it is uh, this law that represses student groups to have discussions as they see fit. It is her that is asking to be nannied by the state, not the students who want to host their own discussions on their own terms. That's actually an interesting, uh, an interesting counterweight to, uh, to, to, to put it, actually. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. And it did get to the point, as I understand it, where if one was to walk into that apartment, you just couldn't see the floor. You couldn't see the floor. And I the, I think one moment that really struck me, I mean, it was a moment that happened every day, but I had trouble opening my front door because it, it pulled inward. And when I pulled inward, there was stuff there. So I had to wedge myself through to get out the door. And I knew it was a problem. I I never denied that. You know, I never thought that was normal, but I really just by the time it reached that point, I couldn't figure out how to change it because it, it wasn't something you could just spend two hours or even five hours on a weekend cleaning and it would go away because I did that more than five hours. I would spend a whole weekend trying myself and it just never seemed to make enough of a dent to really make a noticeable difference. Uh, and uh, during that period, as I understand as well, you, you were having a relationship uh, uh, w- w- with a person who lived in, I think, San Francisco, and they would fly into New York, but you never let them see your apartment. Yes. I mean, that, in that relationship, we would get a hotel room for, for us to stay in. And other relationships I had, I also did not let the people see my apartment. I mean, I didn't let them in, but I, even when we were nearby... I wouldn't just open the door and show them because I was so scared that they wouldn't want to date me once they saw it. Even if I had told them about it, it's one thing to hear about it and it's another thing to see it in person. Yeah. And and over the years, did you try to get in someone, you know, decluttering people or, or cleaning services or anything like that? I, I, the first time I had saved up what for me was a lot of money. It was $150 for three hours. And I remember it very clearly because I had that money and I was excited to get started. And a woman who you know, built herself as a declutterer came over and said, I can't help you. I mean, she basically said, you're too far gone. You need a psychologist. And I was devastated. I, I think that she did wind up doing the three hours, but that was meant to be the beginning of something. And that was very demoralizing because it had taken me a while to get up the courage to ask for help and to save the money. Later, several years later, I hired someone else and that was a lot more. That was $5,000. And I Mm. left the apartment for a week and she spent a week, you know, basically cleaning and throwing things out. And I told her a few things I wanted her to save. And, you know, we had, we had, 
spent other time together in the apartment. And she really did help me a huge amount. But my hoarding was so bad and, and so instinctive that slowly after that happened, I backslid. And even though I had paid her all that money and actually really was happy with how it looked, it just over time reverted to the to almost the, as bad as it was before, which yeah. was also really demoralizing. Uh, now, all uh, um, what seems to have helped though was that was that a subsequent relationship that you you got into and 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 with your current boyfriend. Now, while he never saw that apartment, that eventually helped you at least get some something of a handle on it. Yeah, for me, that did. I was living in New York. He lived in New Jersey, and we decided to move in together. Now, I had told him about my hoarding, but I I knew that he, he's such a neat, I call him a neat freak. He's a very much a minimalist, a very neat person. Uh, I knew that he probably couldn't handle seeing it. So we moved in together, and I brought not all my things. I brought some of them, and he actually helped me. We paid for a junk remover service that basically just comes in and throws out everything in your home. Um, and, you know, that was very, that was another moment where it really made me realize how far gone I was. I mean, I was paying someone money and hundreds of dollars to throw out garbage. Basically, I just couldn't do it. Even at that point, even after I was moving, I couldn't do it myself. I couldn't bring myself to do it. What an interesting insight into hoarding writer and journalist Rachel Crammer-Buzzle from Moncrief. On Thursday, social justice hero Father Peter McVerry joined Kieran Cudahy on the Thursday interview. It's an Irish thing though, isn't it? Like the, to, to be of a certain place, you know, my country is Kiltartan's Cross and all of that. Yeah, I suppose. But my home is where I am. I can live anywhere. Uh, uh, my home is just for the, my home is where I am at the moment. Uh, that's my home. I'm not going to put down any roots there mm. because I might be moving on somewhere else. Uh, so I just live for the for the time being. I live from year to year, possibly from month to month. And uh, where I am, I consider to be my my home. I've been yeah. in Ballymun for the last forty years. I've lived there now for forty years, uh, and I feel very at home in Ballymun. But I'm not a Ballymunner, and I don't uh, I don't claim to be. Uh, I I feel still an outsider in Ballymun. But as far as anywhere goes that I have roots, Ballymun is where I have my roots. Yes, it does. You know, it obviously works for you that that existence, Peter. I'm struck there might be people listening who thinks that sounds a little lonely. That I, I you know I don't have a place, an identifiable spot on the map, I think that is that is my home. You know, that is that the place of my mother's people or whatever, however you want to describe it. Uh, you know, uh, can, can you understand that, that, well, that point of view? Well, I can, and it could be very lonely. I'm not lonely. I mean, I, my day is full. Uh, all day, every day, I meet dozens of people. Uh, every week, I meet probably 15, 20 people every day. Uh, mostly homeless people, of course. That's mm. what I. That's what I do. But I don't feel in any sense lonely. I'm linked in with uh, with a lot of people uh, in different ways. So uh, I don't. I don't feel lonely in any mm. sense. No. Did you ever want a family? Did I want a family? Yeah. <clears throat> 
you make sacrifices in life. Yeah, I would love to have children. I'd love to see ch my children growing up and be able to support them and help them. But you make sacrifices in life. If I had a family, I couldn't do what I'm doing now. At least I couldn't do it in the same way that I'm doing now. Uh, I would be have to do, give some of my time to my family. And that is time that uh, I can't give to, to homeless people. So being celibate is freeing. It frees me to be able to work with homeless people uh, in a way that I couldn't do if I, if I had a family to, to consider. So some homeless people refer to me as the father they never had. And so I feel as in a way as if I, as if I do have a family. You know, I mm. never refer to myself as a father figure because homeless people, no matter how, what their father was like, homeless people have their own father and I'm not a substitute, but they do refer to me in that way. Uh, in fact, mm. more and more frequently, they refer to me now as a grandfather figure. <laughs> but uh, so I do feel in that sense that I have a, a very, very large family of homeless people that I'm working with. It, that, that must be I, I appreciate you say you don't refer to yourself in that way, but that must be fulfilling on one level, is it to hear people talk about you like that? Well, I, think, I guess what I'm yeah, doing is I'm accusing you of I'm accusing is... accusing you of pride there, I guess. <laughs> no, what they mean by that is that I have uh, helped them in some way, in mm. some significant way in their life, uh, that I have been a support person for them, or that I have helped them to move their life in a different direction, in a more positive direction. I think that's what they mean by it, and that certainly is very satisfying and very fulfilling. You know, all you have to do is make a difference in one person's life to make your own life worthwhile. Well, I think I've made a difference in more than one person's life. Uh, and that is, uh, for me, that is, uh, you know, my life, that justifies my existence. Uh, and I, I'm happy about that. The hugely impressive Father Peter McFerry from The Heart Shoulder with Kieran Cuddihy. And of course, you can hear the full interview with Peter on Newstalk.com.
The Staves, as heard on The Tom Dunn Show. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Now, this week, the Hard Shoulder explored the Stardust tragedy 40 years on. The next thing I remember them was being pulled, been outside right in a diff- different atmosphere. And I kept screaming for Mary and Martina, Mary Kenny, Mary Helen Henry, and, and my hands was that badly burned right under a saw, right? But when I did get out of the building and I rec- I tried to ca- cool my hands down and my face down, and I remember I put it into a pile of sand or a pile of soil, I don't know what it was, but it stung the life out of my face and out of my hands. An ambulance man came up to me and told me that everybody was out. They were all gone to the hospitals and I had to go to the hospital. So I got into the ambulance. I was the last one to get in. I still remember so well. Um, and there was girls beside me on this side here. And all I kept doing was looking across and seeing everybody's faces and way to wear it, we're all burned badly and everything and I was screaming with the pain in my own face and my hands and I couldn't breathe and the girl's head just flopped onto the shoulder here and stayed that way all the way to the hospitals, right, and every hospital that we went to, like Jervis Street, the part was outside and he was doing that like, that that full so the last hospital that we got to was the furthest one away, Dr Stevens's hospital and uh, got in there and put on a trolley and put into kind of a cubicle and when I was put into the cubicle in Dr Stevens's hospital I just kept banging my hands off each side of the wall because the cubicle was just big enough for a trolley to go into it and I was screaming for my mum, my dad and my sisters I was terrified, I'll never forget it and then when I did get into a bed I remember my mum and dad they were being told like you know, to check all the hospitals and they came in and they walked past my bed three times and I kept trying to say, ma, ma, da, right, and they couldn't hear me because I had no voice and the tubes hanging out me. I was on a life support machine. And then they eventually came over and I knew by their expression and their face, right, that I must have been in a bad way, that I didn't look good. When you were trying to get out of the nightclub, who were you with? I was, I with, I was with Mary Martina. Mary Kenny and Helen Hanvey. You were all you were on yeah, the Yeah, we group. made a chain. We formed a chain, right? And okay. we said we'd get out together. But we were pushed to the floor. We were pushed onto the floor, right? And people were running over us. And that, like all, all I could remember was, oh, we're never going to get out. Please, God, help us. Help us. But you couldn't breathe because the smoke was that thick. It was actually going into your throat and it was stopping you from breathing. And then the heat, right, and trying to hold your hand over your head and everything else, right, because it was just the, the flames is just right on top of you. It was like being in hell. That's what it was like. It was like being in hell. I'll never forget it. My dad used to say, don't tell any lies, right, tell a lie, you go to hell. That was years ago. And we said, like, I must have told a lie. That was like hell. Did you have any awareness at the at, when when that was happening that... The, the exits were blocked or we, we you know no, you, no. You, you, it all just, just it all just happened so quick so quick like a little small fire and then it turned into a massive big inferno like it was just like something that you'd never actually imagine ever happening so like when we were beside the door we thought right that's when we get out but we didn't get out because there was a stampede like people just running to get out and they couldn't open the doors so the smoke was actually contained in the building and people couldn't breathe and then the fire 
or the lights went out and the, the music stopped. That's the last thing as well. That was a, it's a memory imprint in my head. Like I can't go to sleep at night time without a radio or a television on, and I have to have a light on because that's in my head for the last forty years. Some harrowing memories there from Stardust survivors from the hard shoulder with Kieran Cuddihy. And of course, you can podcast the full Stardust documentary report on Newstalk.com. Well, he got one for Christmas now. There's a little fella. And how old is the little fella? Seven. He's got his bike behind us. It's pretty cute. It's yeah. like a, a BMX with a petrol engine. Yeah. <laughs> really, yeah. And, and why do young people love scramblers? This is what he wanted for Christmas, isn't it? You're seven. Um, yeah. but why do you like scramblers? Because they go super fast. They go super fast and you've got your bike behind us. It's red uh, and it's pretty fancy looking. Mm. How fast does it go? Very fast. They don't go around the field there and up the road and back down. It doesn't stay out too long. So we've got the little bike here. He's just getting on it. That's quite loud, isn't it? Yeah. There you go, So what would that no. cost, roughly? It'd be about 350 around there. 350. And he's gone. And he has the helmet and he's not going that fast. He's only going very slow. Willie O'Dea and other politicians want to try and regulate it and perhaps confiscate them. What's your view on that? I don't think that they should be coming down on kids. They have little enough. They're locked in long enough. I figure if that's keeping them happy and leaving them out around for an hour, he's being watched, he's being minded. So a bit of fun for the kid. Willie O'Dea, Fianna Fáilte Day for Limerick City. First of all, I want to say that some of the people who purchased those machines, uh, you know, used them in a very responsible and adult-type way under the supervision of their parents. But by and large, there's an element that have become a real menace in this city, uh, both in terms of how, how dangerously they used them, you know, on footpaths and public road, etc. I had a, an incident myself, you know, before the lockdown where I was almost knocked down myself in one road in the city by a guy who passed me within literally within an inch on a scrambler. They are disturbing the peace of people who want to live peaceably and quietly in their own homes, particularly elderly people. I've had the unfortunate experience of elderly people living in council housing estates and have lived there all their lives. They have come into my office and literally begged me, begged me to get a transfer out of there because of the activities of some of those people. They're using them in a brazen, deliberate way, but to cause maximum disruption and cause maximum danger. And it's something that has been allowed to drag on, linger on for far too long. It has discommoded a huge amount of people and put other people literally in fear of their lives. And it's, it's, it's beyond time. Now, there's something should be done about it. Pat O'Neill, you're a community activist in the Moiros area. These young people who are using the scramblers, are they just bored because of lockdown? You can see why they'd use them, you know, the adrenaline that they get from, from using these high-powered uh, machines. Personally, I don't think anybody's against them, but it's just in the fashion that they're used. They have no regard for safety, for, for their own safety or for the safety of others around. And I think that's where the fear is. The fear is, you know, it'll take somebody to be, to be hurt or killed, you know, before really people will stand up and say, OK, we need to do something about this. If they see somebody in authority coming towards them, you know, they're gone. They, they gather in a group. Uh, someone pulls it out of their shed. Next, all of a sudden, they all want to have a go off it. You could have um, young eight or nine years of age on, on top of these scramblers. Uh, this place allows me, like, into the west town here, like, but bikes and horses are the only way, like, keeping kids out of trouble around here, people out of trouble, you know? Just going around, just like the bollocks and drinking and all, you know what I mean? Scramblers replace kids acting the bollocks. 
It really does keep them f***ing out of trouble, like, you know? Politicians are complaining and want rid of them. What do you say to them? Sad, like, they're sitting up there and it's dating to better than everyone else, you know? And come out here and have a look around, you know? And you see what it's about now and to change the mind about it. Just build a track for the kids or something. Henry McKean reporting for News Talk Breakfast. On Saturday, Future Proof explored migration in the animal kingdom. Here's Jonathan McRae and Dr Lucy Hawkes from the University of Exeter. So we know in the brain of a human there are things called place cells, which are cells that are linked specifically to a place and time you've been um, in your life. How does this migration happen in birds who have never been to a place before uh, sometimes can, you know, travel on their own and still know where to go. How, how is this GPS encoded in the, the, the brains of, of geese or spiders or whoever it is that's migrating? Or is it at all? Um, so this is still an area that we're doing a lot of research in. And a lot of the early work was done on pigeons in homing lofts. Mm. And um, so you, you can basically hatch your pigeon in a loft and you can you know, drive it 100 kilometres up the road and release it. And we know from that work that birds will use landmarks. So they do something called path integration or path finding, which means that they're kind of like... And in fact, there was a really cool study that used some GPS tags in near Rome in Italy. And you could actually see the birds started off using landmarks and after a bit realised they could just use the highway instead. So they were basically going down the motorway taking like exit seven. It was brilliant. <laughs> anyway, um, so there's definitely some of that going on. But birds do have a magnetic sense too. So birds do have a, an understanding of where magnetic north is, um, as well as kind of lines of magnetic change across the planet. Um, there is some suggestion this might even be a quantum thing that birds actually might be able to spot or, or detect kind of changes in the spinning of electrons. This is way beyond my expertise. But anyway, um, but they, so there's some mad stuff about how they actually detect magnetic fields. But we also believe birds can use celestial navigation as well. So they may be aware of the night sky above them. Um, That's right. The dung beetles do that, don't they? Exactly, yeah. Milky it, Way. It actually, it's amazing kind of like how sophisticated navigators um, even invertebrates can be. Um, I'm a National Geographic explorer. And the first time I ever went to visit the National Geographic Society in London, I got really lost. And I was about half an hour late to this meeting. And I thought, I study these spectacular creatures that can make it across the planet. There's an animal called the bristle-tailed curlew, which breeds in Alaska and then spends the winter in the Solomon Islands, which is like in the middle, sorry, the Marshall Islands, which is in the middle, you know, it's a speck in the middle of the Pacific. And I'm like, and I can't even find the National Geographic office. It was it was horrific but um so yeah these animals do have spectacular senses we've done all kinds of really cool experiments to understand animal navigation one of the most sophisticated ones has been actually putting animals in a chamber that you then put a massive metal coil around so that you can uh, artificially change the magnetic field they're experiencing so you can say for example if you're a little sea turtle that wants to go west and I um, expose you to a magnetic field that's much further east I should see you kind of paddling west frantically for example. Fascinating stuff there from Future Proof and of course you can tune into Jonathan every Saturday afternoon from 12 till 1. On Sunday Claire McKenna spoke to the super impressive Jack Kavanagh for alive and kicking. So, I mean, I think it's important to even from the outset to say you're not positive all the time. You don't open your eyes immediately and think, yes, here's another day. Or do you? 
no, you're absolutely right. I am very much a human being with all of the negativity bias and thoughts and emotions flying through my my mind and my body that everybody else has. But I suppose the approach that I have adopted over the past eight years, as you mentioned, has really been one of what I would call optimistic realism. And that is to say that the circumstances that I faced eight years ago when I had a spinal cord injury were not what I had would have wished for. Um, that was not the vision um, for for my life. That was a certainly an imperfect set of circumstances. And yet it was an event that happened and I could choose to attach whatever meaning that I I was going to give it and that would kind of dictate how things panned out and so the first thing I I did and and do and this isn't something that I do once it's something that I do time and time um, again is that you look at the situation in which you find yourself and you recognize the reality of it and if it's a hard situation it's important to feel that and it's important to acknowledge that and to grieve for that and to be upset and to express those things and so on and when you've expressed those emotions or at least allowed yourself to go through the the challenging elements of it there's a space there and as Viktor Frankl would have said it's in that space is our freedom to choose and and that's the moment at which you can say okay this is a hard situation but how can I approach it in an optimistic way how can I open the door a crack to let a little bit of light in or at least to try and find a bit of light in this and when we do so and when we think about what's one small thing that I can take from this or one small step that I can take to move me in a better direction that's the optimistic element of it so optimistic realism is is that balance of of not shying away from the reality that we face but of embracing in psychology what they would call a growth mindset or or what we could also term as an optimistic lens on it to say well what way can I move forward that's going to be constructive here and it's not happy clappy positivity by any stretch I I don't subscribe to that um, because when it's the case that we think we need to be positive all the time, which is unnatural, um, our, our mind calls our bluff and you're saying think positive thoughts, think positive thoughts, think positive thoughts. And then your mind comes back around and says, but this is a, this is a really hard situation what I'm facing right now. Um, and, and it checkmates you and it 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 calls your bluff so it's about acknowledging the harshness of things that we sometimes find ourselves in and then when we've acknowledged that and given it a little bit of breathing space saying okay how can i move forward in a constructive way what an interesting take on life performance and resilience coach jack Kavanagh from Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. And of course, you can tune into Claire every Sunday morning from 9 till 10. OK, I'm going to leave you with now off the ball's own sheen and the crappy quiz. Have a great weekend. 
and we're on to the final. Our winner tonight will be decided in the round that separates the men from the boys, the Paul McGraths from the Paul Meskels. It's the no theme in particular, ridiculously easy rapid fire round. The score you get in this round will be added to your score in the previous round, and there will be 40 seconds for everyone to answer from the same set of questions. We're going to start with Nathan, then on to Tommy, then on to Adrian, and if you get a question correct, I'll keep asking you questions until you get one wrong, at which point you get deducted one point. Can I just ready, make Nathan? one request before we start on? Here we go. That, here we go. That, so, because he's so far ahead, what you're going to see here is stalling, right? He's yeah. going to go, mm, uh, mm, and he's going because he's so far ahead. As everybody does every week when tactic. they're thinking of the answer. So, I'm only asking one thing. That it's rapid, it's fire. rapid fire. Can we rapidly fire through them? Yes, rapid Thank fire. You. you got through the questions last week, Owen, and you gave us two after the timers, and Nathan could rob me. Let's get through the questions Get through it. Come on. Come on, Owen. Thank you for your contributions. We will we will do all of that. Nathan, oh, you ready? you put together a great quiz so far. Thank you, Tommy, actually. Yeah. Don't let you Cheers. shut down here, man. <laughs> we might actually leave that timer, just roll it a little bit at the end. <laughs> Nathan Murphy, your 40 seconds starts now. What Australian team is Rob Carney signed up to play for? Western Force. Correct. And what, cl- what club does Antoine Dupont pay- play for? Blues. Correct. In what year did Tipperary last win a hurling All-Ireland? 2017. No, 2019. Denis Shapovalov plays what sport, Tommy? Ah, oh, Jesus, tennis. <laughs> Correct. What was the last club Sam Allardyce managed before West Brom? Uh, Stoke. No, Everton. Liverpool signed Ben Davis from which club last week, Adrian? L- Luton. No, Preston. Hull City played their football in what division, Nathan? League One. Correct. Xavi is managing a club in which country at the moment? Tar. Correct. 8-2-0. Nathan well does it again. Well well Let's done. play the well music done. for Nathan. Play that funky camp. music. I deserved it, to be fair. I've got that. This new music. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk.